What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. This is serious business here, man. We've got a mission. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Tonight, on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to have a live performance from the frontman of the Decembrists, Colin Malloy. Plus, we've got reviews of new albums by Cat Power and Test Icicles, a Desert Island jukebox from Mr. Cott, and some interesting news stories, as always. We at war. We at war with terrorism, racism, but most of all, we at war with ourselves. God show me the way because the devil's trying to break me down. The only thing that I pray is that my feet don't fail me now. That, of course, is the amazing hit single. Jesus Walks by Chicago's own Kanye West, who at the time was recovering from a potentially fatal car accident, uh, reaching out to Christ to save him. And it's saying in the song as well, will this song get played? Because I mentioned, I talk about Jesus Christ, realizing what a hot button issue it is. Because I love Jesus, uh, you know, does that make me uh, not cool enough to play in the hip-hop world or the pop world? He's on the cover of the new issue of Rolling Stone, wearing a crown of thorns with uh, what is obviously stage blood, probably borrowed from the Flaming Lips, uh, (laughs) streaming down his face. Uh, And the title of the article is The Passion of Kanye West, instantly one of the most controversial Rolling Stone covers in history. Mm -hmm. Talk about pressing some hot buttons. And I think the cover does it brilliantly. I think it's an instant classic magazine cover. Uh, What does it mean? I don't know. I don't care. It is doing its job almost too well. One of the most outspoken voices of the Catholic Church, Catholic League President Bill Donahue, came out shooting in his response uh, to this. And I quote, If it is true that West is a morally confused black young man, it is also true that Rolling Stone is staffed by morally challenged white veterans. (laughs) They are to West what white boxing agents in the 20th century were to black boxers, rip-off artists. Man. Wow. Now, this is obviously going to be a story for a couple of weeks here, all the way through the Grammys, where West is slated to perform. But this is not new. This is not new. In fact, I have a theory, Greg, as I often do about these things. Mm-hmm. Yes, Would you, you like do, to Mr. hear it? I do. I do. Sex is old hat. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's just everywhere. It's in your face. Rockers can't use that to shock or titillate or get attention anymore. Politics, you know, it's a double-edged sword. can right. come back to bite you. What's left? Religion. That's it. You know what I mean? Religion is still the big taboo. Mm -hmm. Any pop star comes to religion, you can outrage people uh, or you can get people on your side. I mean, but it's dangerous. In that spirit, we're going to take a look at the uh, top five all-time rockers pushing the religion button, either fiascos or – yeah, I guess they're all fiascos, really. (laughs) Certainly controversies. These are the big five. Oh, absolutely. Are you ready? Number one, I mean, there's no two ways about it, Lennon and the Beatles. 
That was unbelievable, the controversy that Lenin caused with what I'm sure he viewed as a relatively innocuous remark. March 1966, Lenin is in an interview with the London Evening Standard, and he makes the observation that the Beatles are, quote, more popular than Jesus. Yes. He was not even saying this was a good thing. This was something that truly, to the depths of his being, freaked him out. Yes. You know, that people would treat the Beatles uh, as religion. You know, and I mean, later in his career, he'd be singing, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Beatles. I think he, he recognized the absurdity of the situation the Beatles had found themselves in, and he was he was trying to describe it to this interviewer, and it got blown out of proportion. I mean, what he said was, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. This was a controversy that lasted a good six or eight months, and uh, John had to eat his words in Chicago, of all places, in August of 66, and apologize. We have uh, some Lenin backpedaling. I was pointed out that fact in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I was just saying it as a fact. And it sort of, it is true to best more for England than here. You know, you? I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong and now it's all this. God is a concept By which we measure Our Rock and religion controversy number two, Mr. Cott, Madonna. I mean, we could argue Madonna's entire career, but uh, in particular, the uh, Like a Prayer Pepsi thing. Right. Well, the the song itself was uh, relatively innocuous, but it was the video that caused heads to spin around. Exactly. Uh, You know, she used Christ on the cross imagery, stigmata. The the crying statue. You you know, know, interracial sex with (laughs) a priest, you know. uh, There was all sorts of... I mean, she was crossing a lot of boundaries with that video. Just about any religion button you could push. And it's interesting with Madonna, I think it was always the case that the visuals always pushed the songs much farther than the songs originally intended. You you look at the lyrics, they're not saying anything. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Pepsi, before they'd even seen the video, had uh, thrown $5 million at Madonna to say, hey, let's incorporate the video into a Pepsi ad. Then they saw the video and they go... Okay. Uh, they aired it three times. Gave her the five million to here. Keep the five million. We're never going to air this let again. Let her out of the contract, and she got to keep the five million. That's a good deal. I would just. She's once, a sharp businesswoman. Once in my career, Mr. Cod, I would go for that. Okay. Music, religion, controversy number three. I say war of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. One of our favorite artists of all time, Sinead O'Connor, did something that was completely shocking, not only to the uh, Saturday Night Live production crew, but uh, a good chunk of America, if it is to be believed. Uh, on October of 1992, as she was about to perform, she held up a picture of the Pope and uh, shredded it in front of the cameras while performing the Bob Marley song, War. And Jim, uh, you've done a lot of research into this area. You've talked to her about this. I've talked to her about it. it. It's a complex point that she tried to make. 
that I think was sort of reduced to a very simplistic gesture that obviously yeah. caused her a great deal of pain. Yeah, I mean, it is again, she's singing a Bob Marley song, and it was an element of the Rastafarian religion, and Marley believed this, that the Catholic Church had partially condoned the slave trade in England and in the United States. Sinead, as a young Irish woman who was denied the right to have an abortion if she chose, in Ireland felt that the Catholic Church was her enemy as well. So she was making the connection. I mean, people just read it as... Sinead mm-hmm. hates the Pope. Right. You know, I think if Sinead even had thought it through, she would have realized that the message would have been easily misinterpreted. And in fact, I think what she was trying to do is destroy her career as a pop star. She said she was very much sick of this whole idea of being out yeah. there in the spotlight all the time. And she did a heck of a job. And interestingly <laughs> enough, <laughs> now, now 15 years later, she has just made a reggae album and is touring with the greatest reggae rhythm section in history, Sly and Robbie. Right. And, you know, calls herself a Rastafarian. Right. All right. Number four on our list of the top five. Religious rock button pushers. our favorite bands and a previous guest on Sound Opinions, Andy Partridge and XTC. Yeah, the song Dear God, a very skeptical, if not cynical, look at religion and the role of God. Andy Partridge uh, is writing a letter to God saying, how can you let so much horrible stuff happen down here on Earth? If you really exist, show me now. You know, people are dying in floods, people are dying in natural disasters. was banned all over the South, caused tremendous controversy. Partridge for his part, didn't believe the song nearly went far enough. This is Andy Partridge. I was surprised that anyone could get so upset. The idea that religion is about people wanting power and using adult fairy tales to keep other people in line is age old, which sounds a lot like what Lennon said. All right, and last and least, last and least on our list of uh, rock religion controversies is this man. That's Marilyn Manson, and uh, really, he sort of framed his entire career around, around this notion of being the Antichrist. Playfully, it must be noted. I mean, he clearly, you know, realizes you're delusional if you truly believe this. A lot of his young fans understand him better than the PMRC certainly does. Who, yeah, I mean, he positioned himself as the Antichrist superstar, but he completely blew it out of proportion. In 96, in the summer of 96, he tells Spin... Hopefully, I'll be remembered as the person who brought an end to Christianity. Yeah, the drugs were talking that day. Meanwhile, it, it pushed uh, Tipper Gore's hot button. Tipper Gore, the head of the Parents Music Resource Center, just as she had done with uh, Ozzy Osbourne when he posed on an album cover with a crown of thorns in 1988, instantly identified as pop music enemy number one. You know, keep your children away from this guy. Yeah. And Manson, in fact, got all the publicity he could possibly well, pay that, for. Well, that's what brings us back to Kanye. I mean, it's going to be really interesting because this is a man who deeply believes in Jesus Christ, calls himself a Christian. Jesus Walks is a religious and devout song, and here he is taking on the image of Christ on the cover of Rolling Stone. So does it bite him in the butt, or does he get away with it because he is religious? To wrap up this whole controversy, and I think it's going to go on, Greg, unbelievable. This story broke two days ago in the UK press. A BBC Three production team in the city of Manchester, which of course is a musical hotbed in the UK, is going to do the Passion Play <laughs> through the streets. I mean, this this is, you know, many Christians do this. You know, you take the Passion Play, you retrace the steps of Christ's 
to the cross uh, through the city. And this is a common occurrence at Easter. What they're doing in Manchester this Easter is pairing up as characters in the Passion Play some of the most famous Manchester pop people and having them sing songs that Manchester bands made famous. This is such a weird story. It's almost as if this is a parody. But but no, it's true. It's all over the UK press. So Christ, who has not been cast yet, is going to sing Joy Division's Love Will Tear Us Apart, duetting with (laughs) Judas, who's going to sing the New Order hit Blue Monday. Um, Mary Magdalene, also not cast yet, is going to sing the Buzzcocks hit Ever Fallen in Love with Someone Who You Shouldn't Have Fallen in Love With. Happy Monday's Bez is That's my favorite. He's going to be a disciple. Uh, The climax apparently is going to come when Christ sings the Smiths Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now as he's being flogged by the Roman soldiers. I was happy in the haze of a drunken hour But heaven knows I'm miserable now I was looking for a job and then I found a job And heaven knows I'm miserable I don't even know how to think about this, Greg. I mean, Kanye, I kind of have an idea. What he's going for. Well, yeah, and also he's got an ego that's as big as uh, one would assume the Messiah's would be. But this English thing is just... I'm sticking with Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune, and he's Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. I know you miss it, Nogda. But along with celebrity comes about 70 shots to your frame, nigga. You are. Use the fag model for Carcanine Esco ass. Went from nasty Nas to Esco's trash. Had a spark when you started, but now you just got That is Jay-Z, one of the biggest hip-hop artists in the history of the art form, taking a task, uh, another one of the major rap artists of the last decade, Nas, in the song Takeover. And he talks about Nas falling from the top ten and not mentioned at all. Nasty stuff. It is not only rock critics who feud, Mr. Kai. Uh, <laughs> probably, actually, the, the rappers are more famous for it. We got two stories involving two of the most famous feuds in hip-hop history. The Nas-Jay-Z thing was going on for years. They had a beef. They had a serious beef yes, they with did. each other. And it started with that song, Jay-Z dissing Nas in uh, his song Takeover. Nas fired back in a song called Ether in which he accused Jay-Z of plagiarism. And then Jay-Z responded to that with a song called Super Ugly, in which he described an affair with the mother of Nas's child. I mean, this got really yeah. ugly well, they really get, fast. You know, and, and, and this, of course, is ancient history. Yeah, this is a longstanding tradition in the ghetto of playing the dozens where you're... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, it's your mama humor. Your mama right, right, wears right, right. army boots, essentially, except much more vile uh, variations of that. And it's been a big part of uh, hip-hop culture for decades. So nothing big there. But the big news that has resulted from this famous beef between these two very prominent hip Pop artists. Well, as soon, as, soon now, as some money got involved, they buried the hatchet. The money, <laughs> the money has talked, Jim. The money has talked. They have now reconciled. And they, of course, are, are two major label recording artists. Jay-Z runs the Def Jam label. He's and now Nas, an executive, yeah. Yes, and Nas is with the Sony Music label. Well, those two major powerhouse labels have decided to split the profits 
on the next two Nas albums, which are now signed to Jay-Z's record company. So Jay-Z and Nas, these two bitter rivals, are right. now business partners. Because, the because there's money involved. Well, and also Three Jay-Z. million dollars, exactly. One of the reasons that uh, Jay-Z and Nas were feuding is that they were t- rushing in to fill this void left by the no- notorious B.I.G., the rotund rapper known as Christopher Wallace, who was uh, killed in March of 1997. He was widely considered the best MC out of New York City. Soul out seats to hear Biggie Small speak. Live a life without fear. Putting five carrots in my baby girl ear. Lunches, brunches, interviews by the pool. Considered a fool because I dropped out of high school. Stereotypes of a black male misunderstood. And it's still all good. Uh. And if you don't know, now you know, New York wasn't going to be big enough for Jay-Z and Nas <laughs> yep. to, to share the number one slot in his wake. Exactly. Uh, there's big feud news, legal news, continuing in the hip-hop world on the B.I.G. story. His mother and, and the surviving family members have been suing the city of Los Angeles. They're trying to say in a civil suit that LAPD officers, some rogue elements in LAPD, withheld evidence in the investigation of B.I.G.'s murder. Uh, it's never been prosecuted. They've never figured out who shot him. The civil suit was dismissed a couple of months ago. It's, it's gearing up to go back to trial. But in the meantime, a federal judge has ordered the city of Los Angeles to pay $1.1 million to the family. They were seeking $2 million, but 1.1 is nothing to sneeze at. Their charges is the LAPD uh, didn't want this murder to be solved. The LAPD said this was uh, simple procedural stuff overlooked, but sort of slowly moving towards some sort of conclusion. Well, you got to figure the L.A. police did something wrong here somewhere. I mean, here, here we are talking about one of the most prominent people in, in the entertainment world, and there still have been no really significant leads in that case in nine years. Many, many Give me theories. a break. You know, if, I mean, it if, was... If you, if you haven't followed it, you know, the, the theory is that Suge Knight, who uh, was managing at that time Tupac Shakur, they were involved in this feud with Biggie on the East Coast, Suge Knight on the West, that Tupac's death is linked to Biggie's death. None of this has ever been proven. There have been books written about it. There's been any number of conspiracy theories. It is extraordinary, though, Greg. I mean, imagine, you know, if Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis caught it at the height of the 50s. And neither murder had ever been solved. Well, there is some progress here, Jim. We can look at it that uh, the notorious B.I.G. and Tupac never got around to solving their beef. And now Nas and Jay-Z have seen the light. Three million dollars makes a lot of beefs go away. Yeah, that's true. What you're hearing underneath us is Los Angeles, I'm Yours by Colin Malloy. He's the leader of a band called The Decemberists. He's in the studio. We're going to chat with him. He's going to play some music as soon as we return on Chicago Public Radio. There is a city by the sea, a gentle company. I don't suppose you want to. And as it tells its sorry tale, In harrowing detail, its hollowness will haunt you. Its streets and boulevards, orphans and oligarchs and whores. Oh, ladies, pleasant and demure. Sallow cheeked and sure, I can see your undies. And all the boys you drag about 
An empty fellow Found from Saturdays to Mondays You hill and valley crowd Hanging your trousers down at your This is the realest thing As ancient choirs sing A dozen blushing cherubs wheel above Los Angeles, my love. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott, pop music critic with the Chicago Tribune. We're here in the studio on Navy Pier with Colin Malloy, the uh, singer, songwriter, guitar player in the Decembrists. But Colin is touring without his band. He's here alone. A man alone with his guitar. Because apparently you, uh, you, you have no uh, ability to relax, Colin. Is that right? No, I can't. I can't. I just got to keep moving. Keep Between Decemberist tours, you've done these solo jaunts, yeah. which are fun. Yeah, they're, they're actually really fun. And, and they kind of remind me why I started playing music to begin with. You know, once the Decemberist tours gotten really kind of complicated and, you know, the organization and execution of them. Was the, just, the now major label recording act, newly it, signed to Capitol Records takes, after it, three great indie efforts. It takes a, a lot to get us off the ground. So it, doing these solo tours is really reminds me of, you know, in some ways it's really connected to, you know, when I was playing really small cafes and bars in Portland when I first moved there. Well, we have a lot to talk to you about, uh, both a Decemberist career and your prehistory, because you're playing or, or you're reissuing some stuff from your first band, the Montana band, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's coming out this week. There's tons to talk about, but you got a guitar here, and we'd like to introduce you to people with some music. Okay, well, I actually uh, was all set up here to play um, uh, one of those songs from uh, my college band, Tarkio, that's being reissued. Now, uh, was that a uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer reference? Is there a little <laughs> Tarkus. bit of uh, a nod to Tarkus? Or where, <laughs> what, what is Tarkio? No, Tarkio. Tarkio is a is a is basically an exit on I ninety in Montana, right right outside of Missoula, and there's nothing there. It's just a railroad stop. And for a long time, I thought that my dad was going to name a, a racehorse that. But uh-huh. as it turned out, it was Raidersburg. But Tarkio still would have made a good racehorse name. So so what? This song's about a decade old. No, much less than that. I think we recorded this in '99, right before I moved out to Portland. So okay. This song in particular is is kind of at the end of the Tarkio period and and was a hair's breadth away from becoming a December song, you know. Mm-hmm. It's called Tristan and His Old. Would you like to go out tonight to Tristan to his old? It's a lovely night To go to the Odeon And sit in the back row I'm sick of staying in old So they threw on some clothes Wandered slowly down the street Lit by lantern lights Through the market square Studied the marquee Bought two tickets and some popcorn And on the screen The heroes With female lead 
hand in hand and says, God, I love you, but you trouble me. She pushes him away. And as the credits rolled, Tristan turned to his old, said, what did you think? It was okay, I guess, but that story's pretty old. It's a bit cliche and hackneyed, I thought, I And back out on the street They stop for some ice cream Talking quietly There was nobody In the room in which they sat As he reached across the table And just as their fingers caught Timidly, he whispers and says, God, I love you, but you trouble me. Said Tristan to his own. Said Tristan to his own. Nice, cool. nice tune from uh, old. Thank you. Colin Malloy's first band, Tarkio. Moved on to the Decembrists, and the Decembrists are sort of regarded, uh, they've been dubbed an orchestral pop band, very uh, you know, lush kind of orchestrations on the records, elaborate arrangements. But Colin, when it comes right down to it, it's, it either works as a song or it doesn't when you can play it with a single guitar, and I would imagine that's where a lot of those songs start, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, that's one of the nice things about this solo tour is that people, I think, those who want to can really hear these songs in the way they were originally written and, you know, recorded. I, you know, demo everything basically just with voice and guitar before I turn it over to the bandmates. So you can just see it in its original form. And a song like Tristan and His Old betrays those uh, literary roots of yours. You were a creative writing major, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and storytelling is what you really want to do, whether it's one guitar and a voice or with the entire Decemberist kind of fleshed out arrangement. Yeah. I mean, I hate to refer to myself as a storyteller. I think there's something kind of trite about that, like calling like songwriters storytellers. I, yeah. I don't know. That yeah, it makes might, you think of like Bruce Springsteen that, with a guitar on VH1. Right. That might yeah. just be my, my conceit. But... um it's just more interesting and more challenging for me to create some sort of narrative, even if, if it's really literal or, or really abstract. I feel like the best songs are the ones that feel like they have an, a nice arc to them and follow similar patterns as you would follow 
writing a, a short story, so I guess I just kind of apply the same rules. Much like the zombies or some of the bands in the uh, the early psychedelic era in England, you're interested in capturing kind of lost eras. I mean, sometimes you're writing about the Victorian period or pre-World War One, or Tristan and Isolde didn't meet at the shopping mall. I mean, you... Right, yeah. I guess it's just trying to juxtapose the two, the sort of old world aesthetic with more of a modern sensibility. And, and I think it's interesting you bring up the zombies because that was a huge part of the psychedelic movement of the 60s it was this fascination with Victorian things. I think that that goes back to the fact that the Victorian age actually was really involved, you know, this sort of colonial era for England was really interested in exotic, faraway climbs, Persia and, yeah. and Asia. and, and Back that, before and, the sun faded on the empire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I think it's that kind of excitement about the exotic and and. Is, is what really flavored the psychedelic era and then in turn, you know, has influenced modern pop music. It, it, it gets you away, too, I think, uh, in, in listening to the December albums especially. It gets you away from that trope where you're constantly writing about, I broke up with my girlfriend and my, my heart is shattered and woe is me, I'm so sad. You've really avoided doing that sort of thing, writing these sort of fabulous kind of epics that you're yeah, <laughs> known for. Which is not to say that that kind of writing is, is bad or, or wrong, like a whole medium, the whole genre, yeah. rock and roll is built around that. Sure. And, and I think that there's a lot of power in the simplicity of those statements. I guess what's just most interesting to me is, is taking those so- same sort of emotions, you know, the things that drive pop songwriting and, and just putting it through a f- few filters. I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of me in, in the, the Legionnaire stuck in the desert or, you know, <laughs> the, the parade to, to crown the Infanta and things like that. Colin Malloy, Legionnaire Stuck in the Desert on uh, Chicago Public Radio. Sound Opinions, we're here in the Jim and Kay Maybe studio. Colin's got a guitar. Are you going to a Shirley Collins song next? Ah, uh, sure. Good, because uh, why don't we talk about that? So so on your first solo tour, you put out an EP. It was only available at gigs. Uh, uh, Colin sings Morrissey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he covered a bunch of Morrissey songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This time you, you're championing... Obscure. I say obscure because she's certainly obscure to me. Now, I know you're a Fairport Convention fan, Mm -hmm. and I am too, and I had never heard of Shirley Collins. So you've got an EP of Shirley Collins covers. You're covering many of her tunes. Who is she? Tell us us about this. She's a really central figure in the the British folk revival, and uh, in the 50s and 60s was fairly well-known and Kind of pre-John Renborn, Pentangle, that stuff? Yeah, you know, she really is a cornerstone of that whole movement, Mm. and everybody really looked to her for influence— and she actually hung out with Alan Lomax for a long time when, when he was going through the South in America mm-hmm. and helped him collect old folk songs in the States. Um, and I was into, into the Fairport Convention, was just kind of starting to dig, dig deeper into that whole era. And uh, it happened on Shirley Collins. I, somebody played a song for me, and I was just immediately struck and like just turned around and got the box set the next thing. Well, so the Decemberist fourth album will come out on Capitol, right? Yeah. So will we hear some Shirley Collins in that? I mean, since it's on your mind now. I, th- I think so. I think mm-hmm. I think there will be a lot of it. And what's the, what's the timetable for that? Um, we're looking to re- release it in October. Okay. Of two thousand. Wow, that's of this year. Of of this current. Wow. Year. So yeah. you're you must be fairly far along on that record, huh? Yeah. I'm getting there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not count our that's Good why he's on a solo tour. He needs a break. <laughs> I don't want to go to work on the album. Yeah. All right. It's uh, Colin Malloy of the Decemberists on Sound Opinions, and he's uh, favoring us with a Shirley Collins song. Uh, this is called Barbara Allen. It was round and about last Martin was tied. 
When the green leaves were swelling That young Jimmy Grove of the West Country Fell in love with Barbary Allen He sent his men into the town To the place where she was dwelling Saying, will you come to my master, dear If your name be Barbary Allen And slowly, slowly got she up And slowly came she nigh him Oh yes, I'm sick, I'm very sick Indeed, I think I'm dying But a word from you would revive me again Oh, lovely Barbary Allen Do you recall, young man, she said When the red wine you were spilling And death is printed on his face And all his heart is stealing But still he cried as she left his side Hard-hearted Barbary Allen As she was going over the fields She heard the death bell tolling And every sound that death bell gave Hard-hearted Barbary Allen Oh, mother, mother, make me a bed Oh, make it soft and narrow Since Jimmy died for me I'll die for him tomorrow That's terrific stuff. Thanks for introducing us to Shirley Collins, Colin oh, Williams. We appreciate that. That was a, that was a, the rock critics. He brought us a little gift today. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis, and uh, this is Colin Malloy of the Decemberists. People have been noticing that you know the shows are getting more and more elaborate. And uh, again, on that storytelling tip, what are your goals now, now that you know? Now you've got this big major label budget, you know, <laughs> rock and, opera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see it happening. I've always wanted to be able to present the shows as a as a rock show and not expect to go see Guar or something like that, where yeah. you're just, you know, overloaded with theatricality. Um, you know, you still should be able to come to the show and just expect to be able to kind of enjoy a, a rock show. That said, I, you know, it's it's been fun for us to experiment with just making the whole the whole experience more enjoyable for us as well as the audience. Mm-hmm. A lot of people disparage indie rock, for lack of a better term, as being you know very very precious and very serious and very earnest. And you seem to be taking every opportunity to sort of puncture those yeah. stereotypes. Well, you know, one of one of the first shows that I saw, I actually the first proper like rock club rock show that I, I went to. When I was 16 and I was in Portland and, and I went and saw the Young Fresh Fellows, 
And I think that was like one of the major changing moments of my life where mm-hmm. watching them perform and just seeing how they, they're, you know, f- you know, Scott McCoy is a, a phenomenal songwriter, but they have such this this great sense of humor on stage and this ability to sort of not take themselves very seriously. And, and I thought that's the way to do a rock show. That's the way to, to make it dynamic and real and, and kind of universal. You are also an author. Uh-huh. Uh, let it be a book about the Replacements 1984 album as part of this great series of fan guides to great albums called 33 and a Third on, on Continuum Books. Yeah. Uh, not the first album I would have figured. I mean, you know, you've, you've yeah, named I mean, Nobody would have pegged you, you know, said, oh, yeah, clearly the yeah. Replacements influence is <laughs> right. SF Sorrow, yeah, you know, yeah. Zombies, uh, uh, you know, uh, but not, not Let It Be by the Replacements. I mean, that was just a huge, huge, infl- you know, record for me at the time. And I think actually going back to the the fellows, um, the, I think the one thing that we do take from the replacements, I mean, I mean, not borrow from Westerberg's writing style at all, or, you know, or their arrangement or whatever, but it, it is their their tongue-in-cheek and nature. And, and the, one of the most amazing things, and I think I say it about, about it in the book, is that they, would, they played at CBGB's to a house full of, you know, industry executives when they were mm-hmm. on an indie label, and they got so drunk they couldn't even play. I, I, mean, I saw that, that show when yeah. Bob was dressed in tinfoil. You yeah. saw that show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I well, was at CB several times seeing the replacements. Bob that, would dress in tinfoil. Sometimes he'd wear a diaper. Yep. And they'd fall <laughs> down tuk-tuk. in tuke. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that... that they were inspired that, I, I never, I never saw them, but just learning, like, how, how much courage would that take? I mean, you know, we've played our shows <laughs> where you know that there's all these industry people out there, and You're we're nervous, and we're... Courage takes alcohol. And we're <laughs> trying to play as best as we can, and, and you know, they obviously were doing it just for the music. Mm. So, I mean, an element of that, if I could just take an element of that from the replacements, I think it's, it's a really important part of... Of showmanship and, and just being a musician. Well, now, having been on the other side of the desk, having having been a rock critic, written a book, what what are you amused by when you see people write about the Decemberists? I remember doing like a zine interview, and uh, somebody said, "You sing a lot about pants. Would you like to <laughs> say something about that?" Sing about pants. And I was I was completely dumbfounded. Was that an accurate insight, though? Are well, there, I guess there there's some mentions of your... trousers and things like that. There's mm-hmm. a reference to pantaloons, I believe. Pantaloons, pantaloons, pantaloons trousers. But it's, it's yeah. these sort of kind of daydreamy <laughs> questions. They're like, I should ask him what's his deal with pants, and then it's just kind <laughs> of like great dead question. silence. I, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> So that that's my that's my. But well, see, that, that's a, that's the other end of not knowing enough. You know, I mean, the the the, the clueless end is uh. So you you play music, huh? Right. You know, and the other end is like this guy has obsessively studied every one of your lyrics, and he has a catalog of all the songs about pants. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He's he's definitely <laughs> taking it apart. And yeah, also, but now, I, that, now that you've gone to Capitol, you know, you don't have to worry about that because you're sellouts and you're not cool anymore. And I know. Well, Colin, it's been a treat, and we look forward to that Decemberist record. Can you bring the whole crew? I mean, did you see the room we got? We can get the whole Decemberist in here. We'll do it. We'll, we'll do it. We'll get some timpani. We'll get some tubular bells, man. Let's do it next so time around. If I knew we were going to do the Collins, I would have brought my Baudran. We could have jammed. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, now, now, now you're scaring them away, man. All right. It's been a pleasure on uh, Sound Opinions. Colin Malloy. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, thanks for having me. listening to a little bit of cat power underneath us when we come back we're going to have a record review of her latest along with test icicles and a desert island jukebox pick from mr greg cott on chicago public radio's sound opinions after it all 
song called After It All from the latest album by Cat Power, a record called The Greatest. Who is Cat Power? She's a southerner, Sean, don't call her Chan, C-H-A-N, Marshall, who has been uh, celebrated in the indie world for a couple of years for making these weird esoteric records that some people love and other people, myself included, intensely do not love. Uh, <laughs> she drives me crazy, and I really intensely dislike <laughs> this artist. What we have here wow. is, uh, you know, y- you might be familiar with the term outsider art. Well, in the music world, there are several artists who are celebrated primarily for the fact that they seem to be handicapped or troubled in some way intensely. Cat Power, uh, Sean Marshall, is famous for melting down on stage, you know, becoming emotionally upset and not being able to finish a single song, giving these horrible kind of, you know, people go hoping to see a crash, like at NASCAR, you know, or a train wreck. And uh, people say, well, she makes great albums, but she's a horrible live performer. I've never heard the great albums, and I've only seen the bad live performances, and I don't – I have heard the albums. I just don't think they're great. And this one, to be called the greatest, is particularly offensive. Cat Power went down to Memphis and recorded with some superstar R&B players, including the incredible team of Teeny Hodges and his brother Leroy Flick Hodges, Flick on bass and Teeny, the guitarist, who was Al Green's songwriting partner, and they were the rhythm players for many of those great Al Green records. Right. And here she's doing this fake kind of a soul, blues, country, gospel amalgam of classic Memphis sounds. I don't think she has the voice for it. I don't think she has the soul for it. This album is one plodding, slow-tempo, badly sung piece of garbage. (laughs) Wow. You know, I agree with you about the concerts. I I sort of gave up on uh, Cat Power as a live performer many years ago. She just doesn't seem to be able to handle it in any kind of an entertaining way. I don't like to see train wrecks on stage. At least of all, pay for them. And uh, in the case of her records, some good, some bad, never a consistent record from beginning to end. The Greatest is not a great record. But it's a much better record than you're giving it credit for. And, And I think the main reason is that she is recording with some people who know what they're doing in the studio. I think Teeny Hodges, the guitar player alone, gives a clinic on how to serve a song and how to serve a singer. His little fills and little riffs 
There's not a solo on this entire record, a guitar solo on this entire record. But the way he sets up songs and the way he sets her up is really masterful. Also got a great drummer on this record, Steve Potts, the guy who replaced Al Jackson in Booker T and the MGs. Well, the, so no, she's recording with these southern guys who know what they're doing. It's a hell of a band. But what would happen if we sent Jenny Lewis or Nico Case or Kelly Hogan down there to record with these guys in Memphis? Somebody who could actually sing and could write great songs. Oh, I think she's got a wonderful voice. It's a, it's a nice dusky voice, and she's got that sort of mesmerizing low-key power to it. I think when she steps up a little bit, there's a song on here called Could We, where you hear what this record might have been had there been a little bit more variety in it, a little bit more strut in her step. She's not a fly-by-night, you know, suddenly discovered Southern soul. This has been her favorite music for a long time. She was born in Atlanta. Her dad is a blues-playing pianist. She's sort of steeped in this kind of music, and this is really where, I think this is her comfort zone. I don't think she's made a great record, but this is certainly on our patented Sound Opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it, trash it. This is not a trash it record at all. I think this is a burn it record with some very worthwhile music on it. Oh, I couldn't disagree more. I don't see any reason for anybody to listen to Cat Power. And <laughs> I just think you have a, you know, people find her sexy. I think male rock critics find her sexy uh-huh. and they hype the heck out of her. Well, sexy doesn't work unless you've got some songs to, to uh, stand behind. And I think uh, the, the song we're going to play next is an example of a good song uh, combined with a, with a sexy voice. And that's Could We from Cat Power's new album, The Greatest, on Sound Opinions. Take a while. was a song called Could We from Cat Power's new album, The Greatest. That's uh, Test Icicles, a UK trio out with their first album for screening purposes only. It's on this label, Domino, Jim, which uh, keeps coming up in our discussions about new music from uh, England. They have been signing a ton of bands that have been much hyped lately, including uh, Franz Ferdinand, which has turned into a platinum-selling band in the United sure. States. Clinic, uh, Sons and Daughters, isn't it? Arctic Monkeys, is that the... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the new hype. <laughs> they keep churning out these innovative combos from England, Test Icicles being the latest. As I said, it's a trio, a couple of 19-year-old guys, uh, another one 25 
in a very short amount of time, gotten a huge blizzard of press in, in the UK, which is not that hard to do. I mean, any band no. that's, uh, you know, the flavor of the week turns into the flavor of the month, and yeah. every, well, I, I every the, British publication writes about you it. You know, God bless the English ability for hyperbole. The New Musical Express branded this album as nothing less than, quote, stark, barking, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> I don't know why that's a good thing. I certainly hear dogs howling on this album. Oh, my God. The central factor, Greg, you have to explain, of Domino Records is it is home base of what we've called the new wave of new wave. Mm-hmm. You know, people revisiting that late 70s, early 80s, ultra danceable, ultra melodic kind of new wave heyday of, of bands like, you know, Blondie and Talking Heads in the United States. I think Test Icicles is aiming a little later. You know, what followed new wave in New York in the 80s was something called No, no wave, wave, where yeah. bands like James Chance and the Contortions or Arto Lindsay's DNA were uh, kind of doing freeform white noise scronk is what the critic Lester Bangs called it. But with, uh, a, with a bit of a groove. You with know? a bit of a still, groove. Still right. moving. You know? James Brown crossed with you know sheer raging feedback Velvet Underground mm-hmm. noise. And they're doing this. You, you've got that disco pulse underneath it. You know, mechanized beats, heavy beats, guitars set on stun. I mean, it's not a cool guitar sound unless it makes your ears bleed as far as these guys are concerned. The vocals, you know, screaming for the most part, occasionally diverging into some nice choruses. They've got songs there is structure beneath what this apparent chaos and noise that they're creating my big problem with the record and i love i love this kind of thing in in general is that it's too much of a good thing basically <laughs> too a, much of a good thing it's a one trick band i mean i like this in small doses but over 46 minutes i want to run screaming from the room it's, no, a, it's I, a headache I, I know what the problem is this is what the problem is you know the 19 year old vocalist and band leader sam merrin has a typical generation y attention span and he is all over the map these songs in the course of one tune yeah. will jump from hip hop to funk to you know all throughout this kind of no wave thing but he's also listened to like bad metallica and speaking of new metal with the umlaut again corn you know so there's all sorts of crap in this mix and there can be eclecticism for good purpose that only makes the songs deeper and richer and shows off the band's virtuosity we yeah. talked about system of a down and then there's eclecticism just because like what the hell i'm gonna throw everything at the I wall and see it. what sticks this record bugs the heck out of me i would not recommend even burning it for the couple of good moments there are a few songs that are a little bit straightforward and and pseudo-interesting, but there's other bands doing it better. It's such a mess. It just gives me a freaking headache. I'm sorry. This is a trash it record. <laughs> it's not as bad for me. It is designed, though, I think, to annoy the listener. There's a portion in that song, Catch It, where it sounds like one of those backyard bug vaporizers. <laughs> and it sounds like, my God, I mean, you know, this is intentionally, this is designed to gouge you into a frenzy. And you either get it or you don't. And I got to say, about halfway through the record, I jump to the other side of the line and say, okay. You know, this might have been a cool EP, but 46 minutes of this stuff relentlessly going on this way was just, it it really bugged the heck out of me. Nevertheless, you are going to hear people talking about this. This is going to be one of the indie hypes of 2006. So we will let you make your decision. We'll play play them something from the record, Mr. Cott, and possibly spare them further agony. Well, be forewarned, folks. This is uh, the most accessible song on the record. (laughs) By that, I mean there's an actual chorus in it, a melody that's almost sung. These guys love to scream and love to to annoy, love to gouge you. Their live shows are frantic, over-the-top kind of deals, I'm told. You sort of get a flavor of that in this song, and then they pull it down for the chorus, which kind of shows you they can do this if they want to, but they're too busy annoying you to bother. Let's pull the lever from Test Icicles on Sound Opinions.
That was Pull the Lever by the Test Icicles. That's a Burn It album for me and uh, Trash It for Jim. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And each week, one of us takes a turn at putting a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox and talking about a track that we can't live without. Mr. Cott, what have you got for us? What I have for us this week, Jim, is a track by a 60s folk singer, not from America, but from England. At the same time that there was a uh, folk rock melding going on in North America with people like Bob Dylan and the band, at the height of the psychedelic era, a similar movement was going on in England, much less hyped, much less publicized than it was in the United States, but nonetheless just as influential in terms of the future music that it uh, affected and, and just as powerful, this music holds up to this day, I think. And, and Sandy Denny was the singer at the center of it all. I don't think Sandy Denny is nearly as famous as she should be. One of the reasons is that she died young. She was in her 30s in the late 70s when she was found in a coma after apparently falling down a flight of stairs and, and obviously cut off a career that had incredible potential to do even more than she already did. She made her mark perhaps most famously for uh, being a guest on Led Zeppelin IV, the fourth Led Zeppelin album on a duet with Robert Plant on the song The Battle of Evermore. As great as that song is, Sandy Denny did much more powerful work both as a solo artist and most importantly with the band Fairport Convention. We were talking about that whole era in British rock earlier with Colin Malloy. Exactly. To my mind, Fairport Convention was just as important as the band in terms of what it did for music. The melding of traditional folk, rustic folk elements with rock. Richard Thompson was the guitar player in Fairport Convention, and he was bringing this almost John Coltrane-ish approach to electric guitar in combination with Sandy Denny, who is this pure-voiced former art student and nurse who just had this amazing singing voice and a deep knowledge of 16th, 17th century folk songs that she brought to this rock band named Fairport Convention. Joined the band on their second album, and immediately they went right for the deep stuff. They were not only recording traditional folk songs and electrifying them, but they were covering Bob Dylan. And Sandy Denny not only did Dylan justice, but I think she just took this song from him and transformed it into an an all-time classic. I still think one of the most powerful ballads ever recorded. It's a version of Dylan's I'll Keep It With Mine, 
And if Sandy Denny had only done just this song, she would have been one of my all-time favorite singers. But she did much more work, and I highly recommend investigating not only her solo records, but the early Fairport convention albums as well. But this is a good place to start. My Desert Island jukebox pick, Sandy Denny's I'll Keep It With Mine, on Sound Opinions. You may search at any That was Sandy Denny from 1969, Fairport Convention, covering Bob Dylan. I'll keep it with mine, my Desert Island jukebox pick. Good choice, Mr. Cott. Very good stuff. We have some people to thank. Tori Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel, our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, our associate producers. Joe Dassault, thanks for the technical assistance. And Mary Gaffney did a great job making uh, Colin Malloy sound good. Thank you all for listening.